0: What's up, all you poker followers? Hope you're enjoying this series as we're interviewing some of the local Minnesota players that have made some deep runs and have had some great results. Today is no different. We're going to be chatting with young superstar Aaron Johnson, who many of you know, who's made a deep run in the World Series of Poker main event and has a ton of other uh, great results to show at his young age. I want to give a quick shout out to the Free Poker Network, who's been Uh, sponsoring this show and promoting what we're doing. Uh, Pete Bushy, all you guys, thanks so much for all you do and all your support. I highly recommend you beginning players, check that out. Find a free game in your area. Learn how to run it up. Try some new strategies. Meet some cool people. And maybe find yourself in Vegas playing at the World Series of Poker all for free. So check that out. But with that, I want to encourage all of you to follow us on Twitter, at RecPoker. We've got a Facebook page and a Facebook group. I'm more prone to use the group. Uh, So please uh, go ahead and join that and uh, join the discussion out there. I also want to encourage you to give us feedback of any kind. We don't know what we don't know uh, unless somebody tells us. So if you like the interviews, let us know. If you want more strategy, let us know. We will be moving from these interviews into more strategic things. But man, there's so many great people to talk to and get to learn their story and figure out their high level approach that, uh, that we're enjoying this for now. But let us know your thoughts. With that, let's join the interview that I had with Aaron Johnson. All right, well, here with uh, Aaron Johnson, one of the most well-respected young players in the area. And oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, nobody's ever told me that, but I just, you know, made that up. So. <laughs> no, I don't, yeah. But by me, anyway, when I played with you, I've only played with you a couple times. Mm-hmm. I think we've been at at least two or three tables together. Yep. I know an MSPT Regional Final Table, I was there with you and Koo and learned a lot, let's just say that, after I got destroyed, and then I know we played at least... One of the uh, one of the buyback, the 280 buybacks, we were at a table together because I remember, I just remember this big spot that you were in and I just wanted to be inside of your brain so much. Yeah. If, if you remember that at all, it was like this big spot and I know you'd already gotten through one day and you're like, mm-hmm. how do I, what's the right play here to maybe win chips, but also make sure I can get through and it was interesting, you were thinking about it for quite a while and I was like, oh, I wish I knew, get inside his brain. Yeah, so. it was a really tough spot. Yeah. yeah, and then and then the guy on your left shoved anyway. Like, yeah, oh. <laughs> but but That's no, it was sad. it was good. So we played a little bit together, but I mean, I just I've got to know you a little bit just from watching you on different things and stalking you and uh, and that sort of thing. But but thanks for taking the time for sitting down with us here and absolutely giving us some of your wisdom and some of your insight. And oh, we'll see. Yeah, and you're a pretty young guy. Like how, how old are we talking about? I'm 26. 26. Okay. And I know we'll get into this a little bit, but right now you're you're already ranked 44th all time in Minnesota career money, you're 504 in the GPI, so things are going well. Good, career's off to a good start.
1: Yeah, it's going decent right now. Yeah, so give us a little bit of
0: background on, all right, Aaron Johnson, where did you Uh come from and how did you get into poker and, 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 and sort of take us there to where you are now and what you're sort of
1: involved with. Yeah, definitely. So I think my story is pretty common for like most kids who started like my age. I was 13 years old and I saw the World Series on TV. And seeing people play a card game and win millions of dollars uh, could be rather enticing to an impressionable (laughs) middle schooler. So I basically just learned how to play the game. Uh, My friends picked it up as well, and we started playing together. I uh, would play online for play money on several different sites. Um, Was just really infatuated and obsessed with the game. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, my best friend at the time was actually playing online for money, like under his parents' name and with their permission. Right. And I thought that was like rather strange because I was the consensus best player in our grade at the time. So for someone worse than me to be playing <laughs> online for money, I kind of felt a little jealous and I certainly wanted to join the fray. So right. um, with some coaxing for my mom and with some parameters that I needed to stay within, uh, she let me play online under her name for mm-hmm. like a $50 deposit or whatever at the time. So in eighth grade, I started playing for Money online. Um, didn't really know what I was doing, of course. It was just uh, an experiment. Right. Maybe gone awry at, at some times. <laughs> um, so did that for a few years. Uh, had decent success. I remember I was opening accounts on different sites, and Party Poker gave me, like, $5 for free, and I ran it up to, like, 1500 or something. No so that was pretty cool, <laughs> okay. being in ninth grade and just running it up from right. five bucks. Um, when I was in tenth grade, actually... There was a tournament on Ultimate Bet, which was my main site at the time. It was the $500 Ultimate Bet Online Championship, $1 guaranteed prize pool. Mm -hmm. And I think I had about $1,300 to my name total. So I went to my mom and I said, Mom, there's this $500 tournament online. Um, I'm going to give you $500 and deposit with your credit card if it's okay, and I'm going to play this tournament. So... Uh, in a act of non-good bankroll management, I played this $500 tournament and ended up getting 26th place for like $5,400. Okay. So being in 10th grade and getting that kind of score was really Huge. awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was cool. Played on and off till I was 18, you know, just having moderate success. So I would say that, that, that big that big score at the time hooked you, but it sounds like you were already hooked. I was pretty hooked, that kind but of I mean affirmed your having ability. that kind of score was really awesome. And obviously all my friends at school knew and like I want to cash out the money I like was obsessed with taking pictures of it and just like sure. g- basking in the glory of the score that I had, so definitely and, and were um, you a game player prior to that? Did you always enjoy like card games or different um, things? Or what, not, what, what not what necessarily was, games. I was okay. definitely a competitive kid, so I enjoyed okay. playing sports of all types. Uh, I wasn't particularly good at any, so to be able to find an outlet where I could compete mm-hmm. maybe better than anyone else was really like cool to me because I always wanted to be uh, really good at sports, but I just never was the best. So to find something where I could at least try to be the best was definitely like yeah. something that caught me for sure. Okay, so that was the because you watched the World Series of Poker at that age, and you're not really a card player. But there's
0: something about the competitiveness. Yeah, that the competitive kind of the nature of it yeah. and just being
1: able to put your wits against someone else's wits and yeah. just kind of battle. Okay. Okay, yeah. so now we're age 18 or so. Yep, so I turned 18 and Treasure Island Casino is like 15 or 20 minutes away from my house. And I started playing uh, live out there, kind of slow limit cash games and tournaments, $100 buy-in and less. Um, played that for... A few years, when I graduated high school, I actually didn't go straight to college. I took a few years off to kind of give the poker thing a try, but, you know, I definitely didn't really know what I was doing insofar Mm -hmm. as getting a good schedule and um, putting in the proper volume and just, you know, probably wasn't the best idea, but I just didn't want to go to school at the time. Didn't know what I was going to do. So, yeah, was dabbling at TI primarily and a little bit online um, with moderate success. Uh, Went back to school in 2011 for a few years just to get an associate's degree, just generals that I could transfer Mm -hmm. somewhere. And it was in 2013 when I was in my last semester of school that I had a really hot fall poker classic which kind of catapulted me into the live scene and was able to kind of put me on a track where I could take the professional route seriously. And Mm -hmm. after I graduated in 2013, I started my professional career in 2014. So that's kind of how it happened. And that's where it's been. And I know there's Mm -hmm. always
0: a discussion around what is professional, what is recreational. I guess if you think about professional just as, as you draw your primary
1: income source from poker, that is what you're doing now. Yep. I'm a full-time poker player. I primarily focus on tournaments still. I try to mix in a cash here and there, but uh, definitely don't play as much as I should. Um, but my schedule is definitely pretty uh, heavy. I'm traveling almost every single weekend somewhere, if it's within the state or out of state, and looking for just the best tournaments or tournament series to hit up. Mm-hmm. And are you doing
0: anything online at all?
1: Online right now, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, I just am not comfortable with the whole situation, and it's not the easiest to get money on and off. And, right. you know, there's a lot of questions just surrounding uh, the viability of it currently. Mm-hmm.
0: But you're able to get the, the games that you need to sustain the income that you're hoping for without going online. You're able to get either the local weeklies or cash
1: or the bigger yep. tours that you're going with. You're able to play enough to... Yeah, I'm able to put on enough volume to uh, at least give myself a chance to make a pretty good income. So how many weekends a year do you think you're playing tournaments? Uh, I'd say probably eighty plus percent. Okay, so at least I thought you were gonna it maybe maybe closer 80. to ninety percent. Yeah,
0: I thought you were gonna say eighty, and I'm like, I was going to inform you that there's only fifty <laughs> yeah, yeah, weekends yeah. in a year. But <laughs> sometimes it feels like that, at least. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, are there particular tours that you travel with and to, or is it more, you know, what's available in the more,
1: you know, in the closer geography? I'm not. I do have a few favorite stops or tournaments, I guess. Uh, I really like the MSPT. I think their tournaments are outstanding. Mm-hmm. There's a good mix of recreational and regular players. Um, and usually there's six figures plus up top to play for. Uh, I like HPT events and World Series circuit events. And, of course, every summer is this the holy grail of tournament poker, which is the World Series plus everything else going on in Vegas at the time. So, right. Yeah.
0: Okay. And so you, you mentioned you had a, a pretty good score there at the end of your second year of college. Is that when is that was 2013? Yeah, 2013. I had a really
1: strong fall poker class. Yeah. So what, what, tell me a little bit more about that. What was that? Okay. Uh, what was the result so, experience? I was going to school at the time, obviously, and I had uh, time that I could play. So I played a $340 buy in noon event on a Friday, and I shipped it for 17 k or whatever. Mm hmm. And then the next tournament I played was a hundred and fifty dollar tournament on that Sunday, so basically a day after I had won. Um, I shipped that for eight or nine K. Okay. And then the next tournament I played on Monday was uh, 235 and I final table then and got like ninth or something like that. that so right? it was just an, an absolutely insane <laughs> boom, boom, run. Boom. Yeah. One of the sickest like positive variance streaks I've ever been on in my career. And yeah. when you're having that much success and playing that confidently, it can be really hard to stop you. And I was mm-hmm. just feeling it at the time. Even though, obviously, skill-wise, I was much worse back then. Mm-hmm. I was just running over my competition in those tournaments, and it was super fun and gave me yeah. a bankroll boost and a confidence boost.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, I, and the
1: timing was perfect.
0: It absolutely like, perfect. As yeah. you're starting to make decisions on... Do I get a quote unquote real job? Do I play poker? Mm -hmm. Wow, there's some affirmation right there. And I love how you said that, you know, a really good positive variance piece. Obviously, we know that poker is skill and luck or variance. And I think, you know, people go through these streaks of not cashing for 10, 15, 20 tournaments in a row if if you're primarily a tournament player. Perfectly normal, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you go into this, man, I'm just horrible. I'm awful, whatever. And of course, there's leaks and there's different things that you can Mm -hmm. work on. But on the other side, there's going to be those times where you you ship two out of three tournaments and final table three in a row and those sorts of pieces where you start thinking, "Wow, I'm this amazing player. Nobody yeah. can stop me." <laughs> and maybe you are playing really well, of course. But there's positive variance that's contributing to that piece. Mm-hmm. So when you're going through that now, maybe that now that you're more experienced, even and now as cocky of a young kid as oh, you know we all yeah. are at that age, <laughs> you know how do you how do you balance that the the, the the down streaks where you're saying, "Man, maybe you don't do this," but for some of us. Where you're, um, man, I'm awful. I'm a bad player. Maybe I should just quit this altogether. And the positive streaks where you're like, man, I'm just, I'm phenomenal. I'm like God's gift to poker. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you balance that emotionally? Are you just able to separate the logic and say, we? I just understand statistics and variance? Or do you ride that emotional roller coaster a bit?
1: So I think I understand variance pretty well, but the game is just so incredibly brutal that it's tough even if you're like the most level-headed logical person on the face of the planet it's really tough to uh, be able to take variance and kind of make sense of it and keep a good mindset Mm -hmm. um so it certainly affects me when i'm having a bad downswing or if i have an upswing i don't stay as level as i should be but uh i think the only thing you can do is understand how streaky the game is Uh, look for ways that if you are not playing the greatest look for to plug those leaks look to make your game just the highest uh ev uh most kind of perfect game that you can play so that the streaks aren't as bad either way like you know so you can have more up upswings than downswings mm-hmm. you just want to make sure you don't let variance affect how you play you always want to be playing your best right yeah right
0: so emotionally if you're not feeling right, maybe enter a different game or take a week off or yeah. whatever that might be to get
1: in the right emotional state. If variance is affecting you that badly, just yeah. don't keep doing what you're doing. You need to find some kind of change, whether it's a mindset change or just improving your game. Yeah. And so I know
0: there's a number of the, the rec players that I've talked to, because I'm, I'm a stats guy, I'm a math guy, so I understand variance. And uh, to some degree, it's still emotional when your aces get busted by 3-4, which just mm-hmm. happened to me. You know, it's, still awesome. yeah. It's, yeah, it's still emotional. Yeah. Um, but you know, you go, well, that's, <clears throat> that's part of the game. I want them to call me every time with 3-4. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. That sort of piece. But, but um, especially when you have less experienced players who are only playing you know, once a month or once every couple of weeks and they go through a streak of 10, 12 in a row without caching, you're starting to approach six months without caching. Yeah. And they start to get down on themselves. So I'd just love to hear your perspective on, like, like, if you're willing to share, sort of, in what are some bad runs that you've had? Like,
1: like, what's a bad run for you in terms of, like, how many tournaments you don't cash? For me, it's probably a little bit different because I'm pretty consistent and my style is conducive to cashing pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. So for me, like, if I go... 5 to 10 tournaments in a row that's pretty bad but that's yeah. certainly not the norm for for the norm it's more like 15 20 20 plus yeah for a bad streak and that's completely normal that's within the mathematical you know expectations so to speak right yeah but it's completely yeah. random you should only
0: cash one out of 10 yeah which means you know if it's law large numbers it means you're going to have those those bigger streaks at all yeah I want to talk about your style because you have a mm-hmm. kind of a unique style too and I want to talk about that but even in your style which we'll talk about you know going five to ten tournaments without cashing that you know for people that are listening that's not that out of the realm of possibility mm-hmm. so you know we go six or seven in a row we think man i'm horrible <laughs> man you're still not even at the at the percentage of 10 percent. you know cash rate so uh it's, it's good for people to just to understand that so so right now you're playing 80 90 of the, the weekends playing quite a bit yep. following, following the tours are you doing just Texas Hold'em? Or are you involved in any of the other games at all? Almost
1: exclusively Texas Hold'em tournaments. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yep. Okay. And so now let's talk a little bit about your play. Okay. So uh, I know poker players don't like to categorize themselves. They like to categorize others. But yeah. it helps for those of us who are listening, which are primarily the the less experienced players. You know, we know some people are more field players versus analytical GTO type. Some are mm-hmm. more aggressive. Some are more passive. Lag tag. You know, all these different labels that are out there. If, if you're looking down on your game... What characteristics would you use to describe your game?
1: So I'd say my game is very uh, kind of math and GTO oriented. I'm very patient. I like to maximize my skill edge. I like to take advantage of people playing poorly. Um, I like to play kind of strong ranges or ranges that are correct, so to speak, GTO wise. Um, And I'm always just looking to adapt to whatever the, the situation is. I think there's a, a cool quote from uh, Bruce Lee that says you should be like water. So you shouldn't really have a form. You should just fit whatever vessel or situation that you're put in. Mm. So you kind of don't want to have any like uh, style, so to speak, but you just want to be able to have whatever style you think is going to be optimal in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which means, from a GTO perspective, you know, you, you have I guess you would say you have
0: your default GTO ranges. Kind of like a base. Play, but then, but yeah. then adapting. If it's a looser table, you might do this. If it's a tighter table, you might do this. Exactly, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, so so I've heard the word. I think you've used it yourself, so I don't think it's a derogatory term, uh-huh.
1: but the cockroach.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Talk a little bit about that, that uh, label. Okay, well, like having a strategy where you're um, very ICM aware, so let's say you're approaching the bubble. It's so incredibly important with a variety of chip stacks to get into the money before... Uh, taking very volatile or variance, variancey swings. Um, so having like a cockroachy style uh, is essentially just trying to be ICM aware and make the money before you start risking these spots that are completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to explain, like just off the top of my head, but um, yeah, it's kind of just being very ICM aware, trying to utilize uh, your chip stack in the most effective way, especially approaching uh, the bubble or pay jumps or whatever. Uh, yeah. And yeah, So, yeah, I mean, just for the <laughs> people that are, that aren't as aware,
0: I know we've talked about ICM a bit and I've heard it described different ways. Uh-huh. Um, you know, maybe give us a, a, your high level synopsis of ICM and what does
1: it mean when you say, you know, due to IC, ICM considerations, what does yep. that mean to you? So basically ICM is the independent chip model and it equates your tournament chips to a cash value. You know, it's basically what it is. So if you have like 10 to 15 big blinds on the stone money bubble, for you to cash in the tournament is absolutely significant because your chips are not, like if you double up, if you have 10 big blinds, you're on the stone bubble and you double up, it's not going to outweigh the min cash if you just wait and get into the money. So um, it basically just dictates how you should play when there's a bubble or uh, pay jumps. And um, another example is like, if you had a final table and, um, you know, there's two short stacks. Let's say you're five-handed at a final table. There's two short stacks, severe, and three people who are even. The two short stacks should always be busting before mm-hmm. any of the three kind of bigger stacks bust just because busting before either of the two short stacks is an ICM disaster. Mm-hmm. You're losing so much value to value relative to what your chips are worth real money-wise. So kind of just is a way to um, think of your chips as real money and kind of find the maximum payout that you should be given uh, with the situation that you're at. Right. And so in the case of the the money bubble, you have, say, you have <clears throat> 10 big
0: blinds or less. The ICM really is, is looks at what's your probability of finishing in all of the different places and, uh-huh. and that sort of thing. So you're saying when you're on the bubble, right before the bubble, doubling up doesn't really give you that much better of a chance to win. Yeah. I mean, no. Your probability of winning is, of
1: course, higher, but still pretty low. Slightly higher, but... But it's always better to wait till you're in the money and right. then double up, and right. then your chances are even higher. Andy guarantee guaranteed yourself the money, and you haven't made an ICM mistake. Right? Yeah. yeah, your your expected earnings are about the same if you have ten or twenty big blinds
0: uh-huh. if you if you survive, but if you obviously lose at zero. So yep. there's that there's that dynamic of getting to the bubble. You know, people tightening up at the bubble, and then once the bubble breaks, it all breaks loose. Mm-hmm. So there, there's different perspectives on approaching the bubble as a medium to big stack. Then there's the you know, see some people that have a lot of success punishing the bubble. Yep. And you have some people that are, I'm just going to let them come to me, wait for them to make a mistake. Is there merit in both? I mean, do you tend to, not in the case where you're cockroaching, but in the case where you have the medium and big stack, you tend to be a punisher? Yeah, usually. (laughs) If if
1: the situation is right, um, if there's other good regs with big stacks at the table, that's a situation where you don't want to be going to war unnecessarily just because you're going to have these massive chip swings basically for no reason. The best time to use your stack in a punishing way like that is if there's a lot of short stacks at your table. If there's no one that's going to battle you back, that's when you just want to unleash the fury, so to yeah. speak. Yeah,
0: yeah. But oh, I love I love those spots. Uh, I mean, for that's, sure. It's, I don't it's do a one lot of the best feelings. Ever. I don't do a lot well, but that's one of the things I do well. Is yeah. The end of day one or early in day two, just building a big stack when you have that situation. You can't just do it recklessly mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there's those situations so no, when you look at no. aaron you see the you know the young face <laughs> and the you hear about the cockroach you know no he's he's ready and willing to to damage you and punish yeah. you if, if necessary definitely so so beyond i guess patience and trying to play game theory optimal uh, to a, to an extent
1: at least as a default range what are some other things that you say are your keys to your success um i think being able to uh adapt to all situations like all areas of the tournament. So starting a tournament with 100 or 200 big blinds and then being able to play a more medium stack and obviously being able to play a short stack, knowing shove ranges for the short stacks, um, being able to hand range people pretty well, mm-hmm. uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, just having a good grasp on like where I am in the tournament and um, all the other factors that go into it, like just all the elements of the game. So are you able to, here's a question I ask of everybody, because a lot of us are
0: struggling with this, as we... Mm-hmm. Uh, as we break down a hand, we have all the information and we can dialogue around it and come up with to figure out the right decision. But when you're in live game action, there seems like there's infinitely infinite amounts of data that we're supposed to try to process. Definitely. Everything amounts. from the basic things of uh, where are we at in the tournament, what are the pay, what's the payout structure... Uh, to what's my position, to what's my stack size, what's your stack size, what's the stack size of everybody at the table, what's the stack-to-pot ratio if I call this bet, what's, the, they're, they're, you know, what, what's your range, what's my range, yeah. what do I think you think my range is, yeah. and what do I think you think you think I, you know. <laughs> there's all of these different things, and I could, I could fold and I could call and I could three-bet, and then what size should I three-bet if I three-bet. There's, there's volumes of data. Um, and so I think as you become more experienced, some of that just becomes intuitive, but for those of us who are trying to get to that intuitive state, what are those things that we really should be paying attention to? Or, you know, I don't I don't know if that's even a fair question. No, it is, yeah. But where do you, I guess, where would you recommend spending the mental energy? Because it seems like trying to re- remember everything is a lot of mental energy.
1: And by the time it's, the decision comes, I'm drained. Yeah, you're uh-huh. on empty. Um, so the biggest things in any hand are going to be things like effective stack sizes, point of the tournament, um, and hand ranges hand ranges is extremely important uh people's frequencies how often people have been opening flatting uh, three bedding, c bedding, all that kind of stuff so those things are going to be very conscious that you should be thinking about that are going to be at the forefront of your thought and then all the other kind of elements of the game are going to be Instinctual and uh, kind of more autopiloty and built into your poker framework already from thousands of hours of experience and millions of hands Mm -hmm. Um, But there still is quite a bit of conscious thought going on in the moment and it's just really tough to kind of like you said, there's so much stimulus and so much data that you're trying to uh, kind of observe and take in and make sense of that it can be tough but when you have so much experience and when you kind of keep on putting in the repetition of trying to think correctly Mm -hmm. Well, in-game, it gets a lot easier, and you're able to process more information in real time, and you're able to just kind of make better decisions and come to better conclusions. Okay. So I have this, as I've continued, I'm a a vision guy, a framework guy.
0: I'm always trying to, like, what's the framework Mm -hmm. Um, versus trying to have all these independent pieces of information? And so when I hear you say that, and one of my things I'm testing is a framework where it's really just... Every decision comes down to range versus range. Mm-hmm. Is is how I'm trying to think about this. And things like um, the person who's who made the aggressive play, what their stack size is, that just really informs what I think their range is. Is it tighter or broader? Um, you know, their physical tells that might be a tighter or broader. The type of player they seem to be, tighter or broader. I mean, so it, is is all of that other information really just about you determining what their range is and and tweaking that
1: or are those really independent things? No, Yeah, those kind of go into the cauldron that uh, gives you the recipe to range someone correctly. So range, like you said, range versus range is actually incredibly important. And using all those elements um, that I touched on a little bit kind of goes into establishing what I think this person's range is and what my range is, what my perceived range is, where my actual hand falls in my range, and mm-hmm. kind of all that kind of stuff. So um, you're, as you're approaching kind of a, a one good mental framework could be just...
0: I'm just starting with their range right now is wide open, and they did this action, and that changes it to
1: this. And then there's the flop, and then there's the turn, and there's the river, and yep. It's so you're you gonna kind of start with a wide range, and as mm-hmm. things um, occur during the hand, you're able to kind of narrow it further and further until you're dealing with something that you may be able to figure out all the combinations mm-hmm. of hands in their range actually, and uh, attempt to make the best decision versus that information that you think. Yeah, you know. and you're actively thinking about what they think your range should be also, or is that not as... Yeah, it depends. There are levels to the game. So a level 1 poker player is only thinking about his or her own hand. They're not thinking about anything else other than that. A level 2 player is thinking about their opponent's range. A level 3 player is thinking about their perceived range in their opponent's eyes, and then it goes on and on until you get to just, you know, some (laughs) matrix-y or uh, um, just, you know, a cluster of Mm -hmm. uh, madness. So, yeah right. Oh. And so do you ever play the the smaller
0: tournaments still? Do you still are you ever playing like the 100 150s? Not too general, much. Okay. No. Yeah. No. Okay. Just because it's just the value's not there cuz there's always a bigger tournament to be playing and Yeah, the, usually. Okay. No. Okay. So if you if you recall back to the early days or even now as you're playing like you said a lot of the tournaments you play the World Series has a plenty of recreational players that probably should, shouldn't be there, maybe they are. Mm. What are those buckets of mistakes that you see, the most common mistakes that you see, where you're sitting
1: there going, hmm, yeah, they need some more experience? So playing incorrect hand ranges pre-flop is a huge thing. Uh, If you can kind of figure out what an optimal range from each position that each stack depth looks like and kind of stick to it within, you know, certain margins... That's going to be huge for you. Uh, when you just, say stack depth, are you talking about just your own, or is that the effective? Uh, effective table? and your own. Okay, it, Both come into play, for sure. Okay, um, So people playing incorrect ranges is a recipe for disaster because so many other mistakes kind of compound from the original mistake of just opening a hand that you shouldn't be opening or folding a hand that you should be opening, mm-hmm. um, definitely. So there's that, and then there's not having a plan for a hand that people play. You'll see people playing just decision- like every single decision is like completely new. So they'll raise and then they'll see a flop and all of a sudden they're making like a decision where they just didn't have any plan. And as a hand progresses, they're just making kind of independent decisions where whereas you should actually try to construct some semblance of a plan for a hand and kind of know what you're going to do on certain board textures and board runouts and what, what you're going to do if someone does something in the hand. Like it shouldn't just be completely... Uh, mm-hmm. a shock to you for when you when get something three bet. happens yeah. yeah like if you open and you get three bet that should not be a shock and you, you shouldn't know uh exactly what you're doing you should know exactly what you're doing mm-hmm. yeah okay or at least have some kind of idea obviously um it's easier said than done it's easier in theory to have a perfect plan and to know what you're going to do when something happens but um it's good to have some semblance of a plan and to kind of be able to prepare for any kind of outcome so you you have that general structure at least obviously you yep. have to ad- adapt
0: you know, to what your what your hand is and what comes on the board a little bit and what the aggressive action that comes with you have this general plan. And is that do you feel like that is a an intentional thought process, or is that again something that's you just you've played so many hands that you just know if I open here with King Queen in middle position, I just know what I'm going to do if there's action?
1: Um, it's mostly conscious thought, although okay. sometimes it's instinctive if, you know, uh you're kinda running low on energy or if it's just a table that's like really weird and you can't really plan for anything mm-hmm. that's going on. So it's mostly conscious uh, having a plan that you're thinking about in game um, mm-hmm. but there's definitely an instinctual and intu- intuitive element to it yeah. so
0: pre-flop ranges having a plan are there other well, well let me ask you this yeah. before we move on like mm-hmm. when you say it, you know people don't have a plan I totally agree with that 100% agree that's a huge mistake that we all make um, is it do you know they don't have a plan because of just the action they took or just because of their or their physical reaction, or how long they delayed in taking action. I mean, how do you know they
1: didn't have a plan? Uh, I mean, mostly from just observing them and seeing like every decision that they make. So, um, if they bet into a flop and something like, let's say they bet into a flop and someone jams, sometimes mm-hmm. you can see that the person who jammed, they're just like, "What the heck just happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, what am I supposed to do now?" But well, you me. should definitely have like the thought, "Okay, if I bet here and this person jams, I need to." kind of have some kind of idea of what I'm going to do to mm-hmm. with that action.
0: Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's not just so that you can act quicker. I mean, no.
1: it's because you, then it helps you make that decision. Like, yeah. okay,
0: if, if I bet and they jam, I'm going to have to fold. Am I comfortable with that? And what's the chance that they might jam? Mm-hmm. And that's where you start looking at that thing. saying, well, if they're the type of player they're going to jam pretty
1: often here, maybe I just check. Is that yeah, well, kind yeah. of the idea? Well, or? the more prepared you are for any kind of, uh, any kind of action that occurs, the better your results are going to be mm-hmm. like if you're unprepared for actions that can occur when you're playing any individual hand you're just going to be far worse off and True. it's going to affect your bottom line tremendously okay yeah so the, i guess yeah the converse would be if i it's a very high likelihood they're going to jam over a bet
0: but i have top set that i should probably bet right and there yeah a lot goes into it definitely. there's some, some of those pieces yeah, yeah. Okay. you're probably laughing in the inside no, but that's okay i'm transparent no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah people know how i play i've told i've told this in other podcasts <laughs> where um maybe I, I don't know if i shared this with you before but um, I was talking about one of the podcasts how I just love to hero call. I just love it. I, I, just love, I love it more than bluffing people off a of hand. Uh, hero calling. Yeah. Um, and so I was playing at a tournament at Aces, and a guy made a big bet on the river. And I'm, I'm tank, and I get like, bottom pair. <laughs> and I, I called him, and, and he, you know, he had the big hand. He says to me, well, I only did made that big bet because I
1: know you love the hero call. I'm like, yeah. oh, so I gave away all my secrets. Now you opened up the Pandora's box of metagame where you have to kind of adjust your range to be more value-heavy on your calls just to exploit them. A little bit. Are yeah. they the kind
0: of person that would be listening to the Red right. Poker podcast? And yeah. <laughs> you made a lot hurt for yourself. Right. I get yeah. paid off more. but oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, anyway, so other big mistakes that you can think of other categories, uh,
1: preflop ranges, not having a plan. The one big thing that comes to the top of my head is uh, kind of results oriented thinking. So that's where someone judges how they played the hand based on what happens instead of judging a hand based on what's the highest EV play in the long run. Right. And having results oriented thinking can absolutely just destroy your ability to get better because you're not judging the game objectively. You're judging the game based on what happened in one little simulation. The variance piece. Yeah, the variance piece. Like there are such an innumerable amount of. things that could have happened in that one hand but just because it played out that way doesn't mean you should be judging your game based on that mm-hmm. like you need to take into account all the objective factors to make the best play in the long run and not worry about individual circumstances or individual occurrences that's that's so good yeah, yeah it's so good we need, we need to hear that it's it's hard emotionally to get there, but I think you, you just do. You have to get there. And you hear it all the time. You hear people telling like bad beat stories. Oh, I got an ace king versus nine ten suited and lost. Like right. if you get an ace king versus you're, nine ten suited, you're printing 60%? you're printing theoretical money, and right. you should be very happy. You should be right. fist pumping. You shouldn't be in like, oh, I should have seen a flop and folded. Right. No, you just need to judge hands based on what you think is going to be the long term, just mathematical profitability of it. Right. Yeah. yeah Hundred mm-hmm. percent. Okay. Any other? <laughs> Uh, those are the biggest things okay. that, that I can think of right now. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, so I think I know how you're going to answer this but and you've listened to the podcast, you you've heard this this question before I'm going to ask you the vague scenario that I've been asking everybody oh, nice. Yeah. and it's <laughs> the the intent is obviously not to break down the hand specifically but to help us understand what piece of information are you really focusing in on that are that you're saying well, without this information I can't even start to make a decision. Mm-hmm. So the the vague scenario is I'm on the button, or we're we're on the button. You're on the button. Aaron. Yeah. Aaron Johnson is on the button. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Under the gun raises, cut off. One seat to your right calls, and you're on the button. You pick a base
1: jack. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm going to give you. What? Awesome. What do you need to know to, so to make a decision? I'm going to know what part, what point of the tournament are we at? What are effective stack sizes, and what are the general frequencies of the people involved? So if I think Under the Gun is opening a correct range, Ace-Jack becomes an easy fold because they're playing, you know, correctly and there's really nothing that you can do to combat that. And uh, it, it's just a pretty trivial fold, I think. Um, if I think Under the Gun is opening too wide, and I think that cutoff is flatting just a pretty transparent kind of middling range of suited connectors, Broadway, suited aces, pocket pairs, etc., then Ace-Jack off starts to become a pretty... Uh, Enticing squeeze spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so if stacks are shallow, like let's say 15 big blinds effective. It's just going to be a three bet jam. Um, but if stacks are deeper, this is kind of a really cool spot to have a plan to three bet fold. Mm. Uh, so let's say you're 40 or 50 big blinds effective or whatever. Um, Ace Jack looks. This is actually a perfect spot to uh, put in a three bet, and then if under the gun comes aggresses with a four bet it's pretty obvious that that's going to be a nutted range like 90x percent of the time so it's an easy three bet fold um and if flatter flats or if one of the gun flats then your three bet becomes almost a value three bet because if they're just flatting they're basically never flatting the top of their range and you're playing in position with a range advantage and a skill advantage and positional advantage which is a good thing to have all those advantages Mm -hmm. on your side but um yeah, so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's a good spot to 3-bet because flatting you don't really want to do because ace-jack doesn't play the best in multi pots. You're rarely going to flop like nutted hands. You're rarely going to make um, a ton of chips by flatting. But by 3-betting, you give yourself a chance to win just by the, the nature of uh, them having to act still. Mm-hmm. And the hand's pretty easy to play because if you get 4-bet, it's just a 3-bet fold. And if they flat, then you're, like I said, playing in position with Uh, likely the best hand and you have a range advantage and skill advantage and positional advantage Mm -hmm. or hopefully a skill advantage (laughs) depending (laughs) on who you are you maybe (laughs) yeah Yeah.
0: well a few things that you said Mm -hmm. in there that are that are super important Mm -hmm. i think one goes back to your concept of having a plan yep Uh, i'm going to plan to three bet fold yep you know whereas i think we tend to think or me i'll just say me i know there's others of you out there but think oh this is a good squeeze spot i raise you know a three bet and then, yeah, here comes the four-bet, and you're like, crap. Yeah. Crap. Yeah. Now I have ace-jack, which, <laughs> I, which I don't love. But, you know, we, we play these mental games of, well, I don't love, but are they just playing me? Or, yeah. you know, uh, I already put that many chips in. You know, it becomes, for, for those of us less experienced, about I want to win this pot mm-hmm.
1: versus what's the right EV play. Yep. Which so is a clear fold. Just kind of construct a plan. I'm going to 3-bet here. And if I get 4-bet, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be very value-heavy. And it mm-hmm. just becomes a trivial fold. So we have to think that that's the beauty of thinking that through. So like you said, you're not just put in the spot
0: where you weren't thinking through. Yeah. And now I've got this emotional disturbance going on in my brain. Yep. And then the other piece that you mentioned, too, is, is cutting out the top end of people's ranges. Mm-hmm. Which I think, mm-hmm. from, a, from a hand-raging skill, is something people forget about all the time. Like, yeah. I'll see that. Like... Like you know, somebody bets pre-flop and the person behind them calls. By the time they get to the river, people are like, "Oh, I know you got aces." (laughs) Well, probably not. Most people aren't that tricky. Especially maybe it's like a four-handed pre-flop thing, and like, "Well, if somebody has aces, they're going to be three betting there." Yeah. But people will say that at the end, "Well, I bet. Oh, you got aces. I know you got aces." And you know, you never really cut out the top
1: end of the range as part of that. So definitely don't try to range people to one specific hand for those people who are doing that. I know. And try to be. Try to think thoroughly about what someone's what someone's range is likely to be. Um, so in the specific, or in the situation that you brought up, when we have Ace Jack, if neither of them four bets, like if under the gun just flats our three bet, he knows that the cutoff is also going to come along, so he's rarely going to be flatting Aces, Kings, Queens, Ace King, etc. He's going to be four betting those, and same with Cutoff. Cutoff is not going to see under the gun flat or three bet, and then right. decide, Oh, I have kings, I'm just going to flat two. Like one of them's going to four bet the top of their range. So, if we get a spot where we three bet and they both call, we can basically exclude the top, you know, couple percent of hands and go from there, which is huge for how we're going to play the hand and what we can base uh, their ranges to be. That's so good, yeah. And when you think about hand ranges, are you Again, part, part,
0: some of this is just second nature for you, but are you thinking about, okay, they have pairs, probably eights through queens, and they have you know aces down through ace-jack and ace-jack suited or ace-queen, and then they have suited connectors. ten. I mean, are you thinking like that, or is your brain thinking in terms of, okay, they've got the top 15% of hands, which you just know because you've studied that off the felt, hmm. or they don't have the top five, but they have somewhere between the 5 and 20% range, I mean, how are you actually thinking about it? Are you thinking about it in terms of the hand combinations that they have? Or are you thinking about it in terms of percentages? Uh,
1: kind of more so the combinations. And, like, when you're arranging someone, like, initially, it's going to be more of an instinctive, okay, I think they have this block mm-hmm. of hands. And then as the hand keeps going, as you can narrow the range, then you can start thinking of actual, like, possibilities in terms of combinations that you think they have. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think they have ace-jack off, ace-queen off. Uh, jack-10 suited, queen-10 suited, whatever, yep. um, you're just able to construct a more narrow and kind of concentrated range that you can consciously think about. Okay, and then yeah. you
0: can compare that to where your hand is Yep. And, and see where you're
1: at relative to the range. Yeah. Okay, super, super
0: interesting because it just sounds like so much
1: to... I probably gonna... not explain it the best either because, no. you know, it's kind of tough to talk about this like just off the cuff, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to do my best and hopefully some people are getting in. No, it sounds yeah. good. I mean, like, that's how I've, I've heard it described is... Thinking okay, what pairs
0: did they have? What's the suit of connectors? What's the suit of aces? What's the, uh-huh. all that kind of stuff? It just seems like there's so many combinations. But maybe your point is you, you end up having this this general idea of this block, and then once it narrows, you narrows, you can start to pick out some of those specific combinations. Definitely but, okay. Just one of those other things that we're all supposed to remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the time. Um, so as you're as you're thinking about the newer players, um, you know a lot of the people listening to this are people that play <clears throat> in the bars or home games or maybe the 30s. Uh, moving up, you know, we have a pretty good audience, but I mean people are always trying to move up to that next level. How do I move from the hundred dollars to the two eighty, from the two eighty to the eleven hundreds? What are some of those things that you're thinking about either early on in your days as becoming a student of the game or for people that are just in the first few years of learning this game wanting to move up, what are those key concepts then that, that we really should be paying attention to? Because we've talked about a lot of things. Some of those are you know next level pieces, but what are those concepts that you'd say you just you just absolutely have to understand this yeah
1: i think it's what we touched on with okay. the mistakes that people are making so opening ranges try to try to have a pretty good understanding of opening ranges and try to have a plan for hands um, try to have a grasp on variance so that you're not riding the emotional roller coaster so that you can try to be more level-headed and um, able to take you know the bad swings that this game inherently has in it mm-hmm. um, so those things are definitely important and just kind of testing your skills against higher and higher competition so mm-hmm. kind of wading into the waters and seeing where you're at and if you're not where you should be then maybe going and studying more talking to better players than you trying to figure out what they're doing that you're not and uh, just trying to get better at the game
0: that's yes, what i was going to ask you so how do you get better mm-hmm. i mean i know you've got a few friends of yours is i mean as you're talking to the folks that are listening how do you get better is it just from playing mm-hmm. is it from do you do online um you know do you have memberships of videos do you have do a lot of reading? Is it hand histories with friends? What's your improvement method?
1: So one of the biggest things is just playing and learning from my own mistakes. And I think I'm able to pretty, uh, I do a pretty good job at like objectively analyzing my game and figuring out where I can uh, plug leaks and where I can maximize my AV in spots where I didn't. Mm-hmm. So I'm really good at that. But most, more importantly is I have some really good friends and connections that I'm able to talk uh, to the game with. Ku Vang and Vlad Revniaga are two of my best friends, and we have a text message thread that we're using (laughs) very frequently to discuss hand histories. Um, My main travel partner, Joe Bernard, is also a great resource because we're very uh, often talking about hands, like on the way to trips or Mm -hmm. uh, when we're at the hotel and we just both busted. We're like going over our hands and trying to figure out what the optimal play was. And um, yeah, so talking with people who understand the game and who are very good is one of the best things that you can do. And then also just like grunt study work, so subscribing to uh, very good video sites, uh, maybe using some software, um, reading hand histories, reading books, stuff like that can be a pretty mm-hmm. good resource to get better at the game. Now I
0: hear people talking. I don't haven't used it all, but like Flopzilla, mm-hmm. is that something that you use those sorts of tools like
1: hand ranging tools? I have in the past, but right now, since I'm primarily live, uh, they're not too applicable to live poker. They're more so based for like online play. Okay. Um, but they can still have some utility for certain live situations, depending on uh, what exactly it is. But okay. for the most part, those aren't going to be too applicable to the live game. Okay. Um, you're going to be better off just like watching training videos and mm-hmm. reading uh, high level, you know, material. And of course, it's interesting because.
0: You know, I've read a number of books trying to learn this game and talk to different people, and people do have different perspectives. You know, there mm-hmm. is no one right answer. Are there any resources that you would look at and say, boy, this, you know, for from a beginning to intermediate level player, this would be a really
1: good resource or individual to pay attention to? Uh, I think Run at Once is a tremendous resource. Uh, all their coaches on there that make training videos are world-class players who... Um, have their own thought processes and way to play the game but they are all similar in just the fact that they're world-class mm-hmm. and they understand the game on such a high level so um, you know they have a basic or some membership that's not elite that's like nine dollars a month or something like that so I would very much recommend uh, run it once as service okay yeah Do you do any coaching <clears throat> yourself I don't do any coaching I've had some inquiries sure, I'm sure. Uh, from several people to coach, but I just have never made the leap to do it. Mm-hmm. I maybe I'd do a good job, maybe I wouldn't, but
0: yeah. Yeah, you enjoy playing more than the coaching side of it, or just just haven't thought about it that much, or just not, yeah, just uh, haven't thought about it too much, I guess. Yeah, I was curious in terms of putting it into real world practicality. Okay, so yeah. so now at this point, every what what Aaron has promised is that every listener of this podcast will have access. To his and who's <laughs> and Vlad's hand history breakdown. Yeah. Now I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> but obviously that'd be a wealth of information. I think uh, that's one of the things that uh, I've got this group of people now with Rec Poker and uh, this this home game that we're part of. You know, we love talking about hands and that sort of piece, and definitely. a lot of really good recreational players. But sometimes I know we're wondering, are we thinking about this right? Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes there can be this danger in. And if you're surrounding with the people that are either all like-minded or not really thinking about the game in the right way, where we're affirming our own bad behavior. Yeah. And so I don't know. That's one thing that we have to think about. How do we get out of... Or how do we make sure that the way that we're talking about it is the correct way? Mm-hmm. So that's where we can we somehow get connected through a run at once or
1: some video series or yeah. something. Just so that you can kind of get affirmation from higher level players where you can kind of be more sure that you're talking about the correct kind of right. ways to go about the game,
0: right? We did that yeah. in an earlier episode some of the people that have been listening for a while will know that. We we broke down a hand with pocket tens mm-hmm. and you know, we we came to a consensus on what <laughs> it was and then one of the pros was like, "Well, I want to do something different." Kind of came and crushed it. <laughs> kind of crushed it, yeah. which which is good. I mean, we we're, were trying to be transparent, but we're like, "Huh, we were all pretty much you know, had the same thought process." No, I mean, they may or may not have been right, mm-hmm. but it was it was an interesting sort of spot to go like, "Hmm, are we uh, you know, just in the cycle of, of bad behavior or what. Yeah. All right, so what's, so what's coming up for, for Aaron now? The World Series, what do you got planned for that deal? What are you going to play? Yeah.
1: So I got quite a few tournaments coming up before that, but, yeah, I'll yeah. be in Vegas for about seven weeks playing a pretty hefty schedule of, uh, you know, one K is 1500s, some side events at, like, the Venetian, Planet Hollywood, The Win, uh, just any high-value tournaments that are there that I think uh, are worth playing, I'll be participating in does that include the mspt at the venetian yeah Is that one okay yep. i know that's a
0: big that's like a two million dollar guarantee isn't it? i think it's 2.5 million 2.5 yeah miles. pretty <laughs> crazy and then so what do you have coming up before then some of the circuit events and
1: yeah there's um an hpt in chicago an mspt or a couple mspts actually um i might be going to choctaw this weekend for like an 1100 one milli guaranteed so okay yeah got to I think I have five weekends in a row where I'll be traveling, then I have one weekend off before the series, so okay. definitely going to be busy. Right. Is that exciting for you? I mean, as much as you play, is that still like, do you look at that and go like, man, this is just exciting to have all this upcoming tournaments, or is it kind of a grind? Um, it is a grind, but you still get excited because, you know, you're playing for serious money and you're doing what you want to do with your life, and that's mm-hmm. just the most important thing, so for me to be a professional poker player traveling to these places is basically living the dream so even though it feels like a grind it's definitely exciting and obviously, with the summer coming up, that's like the most giddy time of the year. It's, it's a p- poker camp for, it's summer camp for poker players. Right. Yeah. And there's guys like, we've got a group of like four to six of us that are going to go
0: out to Vegas for a week this year. Awesome. First time we're going to road trip is going to be crazy. Very, Very cool. But yeah, people like, you should be super excited because you've got all these fish that are coming in from all these different parts of the Bus country. Them in, yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Bring them in. The more the merrier. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah treat them well. <laughs> so when you go play those weekend events, obviously there's a main event. And I don't know how all the structures work, but mm-hmm. I know the MSPT has different events in addition to the main event. So do you go like a, do like a Thursday through Sunday and play some of the side events,
1: or is it pretty much like going to Choctaw and playing the main and calling it good? So for like one tournament, things like MSPTs, it's a Thursday through Sunday, but still only playing the main event usually. Okay. Maybe mix in some cash on Thursday or a qualifier, because those qualifiers are pretty good value. High value. Fun, you know. Yeah. So um, that's going to be a Thursday through Sunday. They got starting flight on Friday, starting flight on Saturday, day two Sunday then you're out of there on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, for things like World Series Circuit, that's a thing where there's going to be multiple tournaments going on in the span of a week and a half, two weeks. So that's more so where you're playing every single day and then playing the main event, which is kind of the main event set up for any other tournament, you know, Friday, okay. Saturday, Sunday.
0: Okay. yeah. So you so you go play this event. And you, you, on <clears throat> Friday you play and you get through to day
1: two. What does your Saturday look like? Saturday either mixing in cash or working out or just doing whatever, just keep myself as fresh as possible for Sunday, but also trying to, you know, make money if I have the energy and the ambition and whatever at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And so when you, one of my favorite things to ever do is bag for
0: day two. You know, Absolutely. I, don't, I don't play a lot, but I've, you know, I've bagged, I don't know, half a dozen times. I just love it. There's,
1: it's a great feeling to bag for day two. Like honestly, it is, yeah. especially
0: with a decent bag, but any bag, any bag. Yep. it's exciting. And you what have the, a chance
1: on day two to, you know, make you, it run. You
0: don't know. Right. Today's,
1: today's the day. And, and,
0: um, but one of the things I like to do, and I'm curious what your perspective is, I love to research the other players at my table. I don't know if I'm doing it correctly or not, but um, you know, you're know, you getting up way too early and huh. figuring that stuff out. Is that something you do when you're going into a day two? Obviously, I assume you look at your table draw, uh, and in some cases you're gonna know some of the players already, but if not, do you, do a significant amount of research and try to figure out who's at your starting table for day two, or not really. Uh, not
1: for most tournaments, just because uh, I'm gonna recognize most of the notable players if there are any, and if they're not, then I can just look them up while we're playing. If I think that okay, mm. this person's okay. playing pretty interesting, I'm not sure if he's really good or if he's just running into some good cards or something like that. So, if I sit down and I'm unsure of someone, then I'll look them up, or else it's basically just go in there and play and. Uh, one of the reasons I don't look up players is you never know how long you're going to be playing at your table. Right. Um, your table is has people busting and new players coming in, so there's not necessarily uh, that much like utility to doing that. But for big events like the main event in, mm-hmm. in Vegas for the 10K, that's definitely a spot where if you make day two or day three or day four or whatever, that's where you certainly want to be doing a lot of study work in terms of who are these people and what are their results. Well, let's talk about
0: that run. Okay, which I I, yeah. I should have. I was I was going to talk a bit about your results, and we just kind of skimmed over it because <laughs> yeah. your your stats are are, are impressive. You, you oh, thanks. You're, you. you're 26. 26. Yeah. And I know the Global Poker Index people feel different differently about it, but at least it's some measurement of you know how people are doing. And and then I saw that you're ranked 504 as of this morning. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and you know what does that mean? Well, that means according to their system, you're the 504th best player in the world right now. Yeah. Right. I guess so, yeah. I don't give a tip, but that's pretty cool, but yeah. I was looking at like some of the names around you. You've got a little bit mm. of work to do number at number 500 four spots ahead of
1: you. Do you know who? Uh no. Phil Locke. Oh. So you're huh.
0: you're four spots behind oh, Phil I guess Locke. Kind of
1: surprise that high cuz he doesn't I don't think he doesn't plays play too Locke. much these days, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the
0: whole thing. But like uh, Scott Seaver, Blair Hinkle. Oh wow. Um those those are just a few spots ahead of you and then right behind you Ravi Raghavan. Okay. Who you, who you know, uh, Natasha Mercier. Okay. You know, I think it's nice. Natasha Barber, right? Yep. And then uh, Joe Bernard at five fourteen. Oh, He's only on my, ten spots behind you. T- yeah, ten notches. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so, let's go ahead and put a more bigger cushion between us. <laughs> right. Maybe yeah. this weekend you can do that. Oh, but, yeah. but you know, your numbers are, are huge. Uh your biggest cash that at least I saw was like ninety seven thousand. Yep. So talk a little bit about that cash and maybe mm-hmm. some of the World
1: Series, the main event deep run and mm-hmm. So the 97,000 came yeah. when I got 72nd in the World Series of Poker main event. Oh,
0: I, okay, I was thinking those are two different scores. Okay, that was nope, the, big, that was that was the main big event. I know you yep.
1: had a huge run. 72nd. Yeah, so that's, I made it to day six and played for maybe an hour or so before busting. Yeah. But yeah, that tournament is absolutely incredible, and I recommend for anyone who has the um, funds and the time to do it to play it at least once in their, in their life just because it's an amazing experience and it's a tournament really unlike any other yeah. So everybody says that, but why? Uh-huh. why is it unlike any other? So you got a field. It's a 10K buy-in, but it's more like it feels like a $500 field <laughs> is because there's so many amateur and recreational players who are truly just playing it to experience it. And bucket list item. Exactly. So it's a very, I don't want to say soft field because that can be derogatory, but it is I've a soft field. Yeah. Um, and the structure is absolutely incredible it's basically unreal it's two hour levels two hours two hours 50k levels, starting 50k starting which was new last year right. it was 30k before that yeah. so my deep run came with the 50k starting stack yeah. and i mean yeah it just allows you to be patient to look for the best spots possible to take advantage of all the poor play that you're going to see to kind of avoid playing unnecessary pots versus mm-hmm. good players just kind of all the things that you want to do theoretically right. to make a deep run in a tournament yeah. And this was my third time playing it, and I've definitely gotten um, markedly better each uh, su- su- successive time. But well, you cashed at least one of the other two, right? Yeah, I cashed the year before that. Just a fifteen k min yep. cash for like seven hundredth place or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So congratulations, oh, formally. I know there there's a lot much. of us that were sweating you know, That
0: were, <laughs> oh my god, Aaron made it. The support me, was now.
1: unreal. I mean, the Minnesota poker community yeah. is kind of just like unique uh, in that. Uh, the players who make deep runs get so much support, just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. My phone was blowing up for like I'm sure. four or five days straight. <laughs> it was... Did you just try to
0: just avoid it then, or were you trying to engage with? No, it, or... in the
1: mornings I would always try to catch up on okay. everything and show people that I was appreciative of them, yeah. you know, supporting me and yeah. Well, so, for what it's so worth, I was, I was probably
0: one of those guys. Hey, way to go! You know, <laughs> yeah. I think it's cool. But you know, for what it's worth, those of us are, that are out there, I'm sure wouldn't care if you just ignored us for a few days and, mm-hmm. and, and did your thing. But uh-huh. it was it was pretty sweet. Hopefully, there's people out there from Minnesota. I assume railing you. Yeah. Uh, by the time you got Joe to Joe was there six. watching me. Uh, yeah. And
1: some others too. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So other, so World Series. Other, have you had other success out there as well? Any other? Um, moderate success outside. Yeah. Me and Joe Bernard went deep in the DraftKings 50/50 in 2015. That's right. that's right. And we went out like i think 12th and 10th or something like that okay so i'll be playing at the same that's table awesome. out of i think there was 1300 runners or something like that yeah. and to be at the same table with two tables left just Crazy. incredible yeah. fun right pretty cool super yeah. fun yeah
0: yeah
1: and um oh was i gonna
0: so so one of the tournaments that's going on when i'm going to be out there i think we're just going to play the dailies even though i'm super tempted to play this as the marathon Okay. Have you seen that out there? I assume yeah. is that one that you're going to yep. be playing. i assume? definitely going to be playing that oh, one because
1: it's the closest thing that I could think of to the main event in terms of the structure. Yeah. So if you can't play the main event and you have the funds to play something like a marathon, I'd definitely yeah. recommend that to at least get a feel of what the main event is kind of like. It's going to be the closest thing to mm-hmm. a main event that you can get. Yeah, because it's like 100 minute levels, twenty six thousand starting stack. Yep. So a fantastic
0: idea there too, for sure. All right. Well, oh, um, what else am I going to ask you? Oh, um, since I have a little bit of time, since so we got a few minutes left here, but I was going to ask you about like staking. I'm curious, like, what's your take on that? Are you, and if you don't want to share, that's perfectly <clears throat> fine or we can edit this out. But, mm-hmm. you know, just just a general idea, I know some people have said, you know, you don't realize that how many people are actually staked or that have pieces of each other. Um, I guess in general sense, are you, I guess, pro staking? Do you think it's a good, good for the game, good for the sport? And I guess, what's your involvement?
1: Do you, do you get involved in staking others? Do you have other people stake you? Mm-hmm. So I think staking is necessary for most players because in order to play something like the summer, you'd need a tremendous bankroll to be playing it properly mm-hmm. or else mm-hmm. you are just be playing outside your bankroll and your risk of ruin is you know astronomically uh, high. So I think to have staking, to sell pieces of yourself, to buy pieces of others is a really great thing, especially if you're buying from reputable, skilled mm-hmm. players who are never going to um, scum you and uh, who have a great... Um, chance of having a return on their investment for either you putting money into them or uh, just selling yourself and giving a profit to your investors. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely think staking is a really good thing um, given uh, the correct circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Do you sell action or do you... So right now I don't sell. I have an arrangement, uh, a backing kind of arrangement where um, I just have one person who I work with and basically... Just a risk control sort of thing for you, yeah. Investment for them, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I mean, because I know
0: there's all these different models out there, and I actually believe it or not, I actually have investors. I have a pool of investors, and and, and oh, nice. <laughs> which is great. I mean, it's yeah. phenomenal because we do it as a big package, like it's a X number of dollars buy-ins, and you know, we just until those buy-ins are gone, that's the whole package, uh-huh. and it works really <clears throat> well. And then I've heard this uh, the different notions about people having stables of stuff, where there's coaching involved, and then I hear about you know um, people just going. There and telling, hey, you know, single event or a package at a markup, and so I was just kind of curious what your what your take was and all that. But it's yeah, it seems like it's good, but it, it does make me nervous sometimes. You're like, okay, do all these guys just have pieces of each other, and there's <sighs> an inherent sort of collusion? involved. No, you don't have
1: to be too worried about anything like that. Okay. That's for like the highest kind of tournaments like 100ks and super high rollers and stuff like the 75 bounty tournaments Ex- yeah there's a lot of collusion going i've on heard that the, <laughs> the swapping action and selling pieces so be careful that's what i thought i, yeah. I saw yeah. some check downs in the river with full houses Yeah, get, I get the floor called over on some of those
0: <laughs> yeah well well thanks thanks for your time again but is there any i guess any word of
1: wisdom you want to leave the the listeners with um i just want to wish everyone the best of luck uh this game can be brutal so try to manage the variants of the game with any success or lack of Um, and always hold yourself accountable for how you play, even if you think you played perfectly, because there's always a higher level that you could have played to increase your long-term ROI, and blaming the dealer, blaming variants, blaming other players, telling other players they did stuff incorrectly is only going to hurt yourself, and it's going to make you also look not very good. So I'd say um, definitely just take responsibility for how you play and always look to play better, even if you think you played well. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really good advice. Mm-hmm. We
0: should just end there, but I have, that made triggered one thought. Because oh, for I sure, I talk too much. <laughs> but but you mentioned that you're one of these guys that I, I appreciate so much at the table because win or lose, and I'm only mostly just seeing you win. But um, <laughs> but, yeah. but but um, you, you know, you treat the game and treat other players with respect, and I think that's something that for the most part of the Minnesota poker community is, is very good. Mm-hmm, but definitely. there are instances, and I'm going to use my soapbox opportunity here for the people that are out there listening that maybe don't treat people the right way. <laughs> um, as you look at you know, new players, less experienced players like myself and others that are trying to move up in the stakes, you want us in your game. I just want to remind you that you want us playing the 280s. You want us playing the 1100s. And so when we come to tournaments and we make mistakes, you shouldn't berate us.
1: You should encourage. And it makes uh, no logical sense to berate someone who's playing poorly because you want them to play poorly. Do you want them to play perfectly against you? What is this? That's that's exactly my point. You should be saying... Wait, that's a really good play with that five four or whatever
0: that is. And so, but but anyway, just I think you know as we're as we're all most of us are involved in trying to grow the game and, and that sort of thing. It's just something to keep in mind that even though the emotion can overtake you, uh, you, you want to encourage people to, to play. You don't want to make it a bad experience, especially people that don't play that much. They want to have their experience be good. So mm-hmm. and so I appreciate your your presence at the table and how you present yourself uh, in that way. Yeah, thank you. I try to conduct myself
1: professionally and. Yeah, you know, with respect for everyone.
0: Yeah, and I think that's just your personality in general. Yeah, but but much, I do yeah. appreciate that. And so uh last thing, just at some point we'd love to circle back with you and break down some specific hands. Mm-hmm. So so stay tuned. We'll, we'll try yeah. to catch you catch you more on that. We'll actually get in some specific strategy and how to look at some hands if you don't mind doing that. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks everybody. Well, once again, thanks, Aaron Johnson, for taking the time to sit down with us and share your thoughts. Follow us at Rec Poker on Twitter, Rec Poker Facebook group. Feel free to email me directly, Steve Fredlund at gmail.com. Let me know any thoughts that you have on the program, how we can make it better, what you enjoyed, any of that sort of stuff. Shout out to the Free Poker Network for your support. So, with that, we'll call it a week and we will yap at you in another seven days. Thanks.